0: you can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Hebrews. Uh, We've been going through that book now as a church family for several months. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. This morning we're going to finish that chapter. We're going to try to at least, I think we will, uh, finish that chapter Hebrews 7 this morning. But I want to share a couple things before we uh, turn toward the text itself. One is just a, a and echoing, so to speak, of what John said earlier. If you're a guest with us, we're really grateful that you're here. Uh, One way we could get to know you a little bit better, us learning you, you learning us, uh, you could fill out a connection card either on the back of the paper program you received, at the back on the bottom of it, there's a paper uh, copy you can fill out and take that with you to the lobby later at the end of the service uh, to the counter out there. There's some folks who would love to talk to you, or you could fill it out digitally as well. If that's easier for you to do or more preferable for you uh, to do, you could do that at the end of the service or anytime, uh, follow that QR code that's on the back of the program. Uh, it'll take you to that same form digitally. But if you are newer to the church, if it's your very first Sunday, or if you've just been with us recently, uh, we do every month have what we call a coffee with the pastors. We're actually going to do that tonight. We'll do it again in February and again in March, but we're going to do that tonight at six over on this side of the building, uh, same time as youth group. Uh, but if you'd like to come to that, you don't need to sign up or anything. Just show up. We just share some about the church. You share about who you are. We get to know you. Try to, to paint a picture of the path forward of involvement in the church. Uh, But one other thing I wanted to to, uh, share kind of as an announcement is, we're trying to increasingly, uh, where there is opportunity to make connections with our denomination, we're the only Sovereign Grace Church in the entire state of Indiana, (laughs) as of now, until we plant this church in North Manchester, Lord willing, which I'm glad to have Adam and Claire and Asher with us this morning. It's good to have you all. Uh, But we're trying to increasingly, where there's opportunity to, where there's events that are hosted, things like that to encourage us to participate. And there's a men's retreat that's coming up the end of February, uh, that we would encourage anybody who's 16 and up, uh, men in the church, if you'd like to go to that, uh, there's details on our church website. We're going to bring in a guest speaker and some churches from our region and our denomination are going to assemble there in Ohio. Uh, Jim Neuheiser is his name. He's a professor at RTS in Charlotte. Uh, I could tell you a lot about him. He's written many books on marriage. He's a biblical counselor. Uh, he's written about finances, all sorts of things. But he's going to be teaching about the concept. It's an overarching concept of change. How do we see change in ourselves take place? And how do we lead that if God's entrusts us with a family? Or how do we lead that in our church or even in our communities? And so you need to sign up by February 6th, I think, is the deadline, a couple Sundays from now. But you can find details on that and can register register online. All right, I hope that you have found Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, our, I love living in Winona Lake. Our, our ta- I live in Warsaw. I love ministering in Winona Lake. Uh, but one of the things that our town is known for is the famous evangelist Billy Sunday. Uh, there's a street named after him. There's a house up the top of the hill up from Cerulean where uh, he lived near the, the end of his life. But if you don't know much about him, which I don't know a ton either, uh, but he was a professional baseball player who was converted to Christianity. And in the early 1900s, he became an evangelist and he would preach to thousands of people in the early 1900s all across the country Uh, and there would be large crowds that would come to hear him and my anticipation would be if somehow Billy Sunday and I could down the hill from his house meet at Light Rail or something and have coffee we'd have a lot of fun conversation I think I love baseball he was a baseball player Uh, he seems like just a, a fiery personality we would differ on some stuff most definitely I've read about how he would preach and it's like night and day from how I try to preach. We'd have our differences. Uh, but one thing I really admire as I've read a little bit about him, that one thing I definitely admire about him was his, what I'd call his evangelistic fervor. He had a deep, deep desire. No matter what you think of him, he had a deep desire to see sinners reconciled to God and to to preach to them about the cross and the empty tomb of Christ and to offer forgiveness to them through Christ. And I I was thinking about him and reading a little bit about him this week because I learned a phrase that he would apparently use a lot uh, when he would go and, and preach. And actually comes, part of the phrase comes from today's text that we're going to read here in just a moment. But he would he would say this, he would say, to the people that would be assembled, he would say, God can save the guttermost to the uttermost. Uh, That's what he would say. He would say, God can save the guttermost people, just coining a phrase, can save them to the uttermost. And what he was trying to communicate in that was that even people who have metaphorically fallen in the gutter, and they can no longer deny and nobody else can deny their sinfulness. They've, they've fallen into deep sin, they feel like they cannot, and it's true, they cannot pull themselves up out of that. They can't atone for their sins. He wanted them to know, even in their darkness of soul and maybe their despair, that God can save you no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what sins you have committed or are committing, God is capable and willing of saving you to Uttermost. And so this morning we're going to come to the, the text of Hebrews where right in the middle of it is going to have part of that phrase that Billy Sunday liked so much and latched onto it. But we're going to read all the surrounding context as well. We don't skip over verses. We're going to start at verse 23. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and we're going to we'll see what the Lord is saying through this author to the original audience. And I trust uh, that we will be able to see also what the Spirit is saying to us through this text today as we assemble together. If you've not been with us, the book of Hebrews, just to give you brief context, it it was a letter, maybe even a a written transcript of a sermon, we don't know, but it was a letter written to these early Christians in the first century who were ethnically Jewish, uh, brothers and sisters who had grown up in the Jewish uh, community and in the Jewish faith, but who had heard of this Messiah Christ and they had put their faith in him, but they were being tempted to, as opposition came, as, as hardship came upon them for their faith, they were tempted to go back to the old way to go back to the Old Covenant operations. And you can see the word former several times through the book of Hebrews. It's going to be right at the beginning of what I read here in a moment. This word former keeps coming up. The author talks about the former commandment or the former former days. in, In this text, he's going to talk about the former priests like that they used to go to, that they used to live under. And he's been contrasting in this section of the letter that we've been going through, he's been contrasting priests in particular. The Levitical priests, these people would have grown up respecting and revering and going to. He's contrasted them with the singular priest Jesus, the high priest of heaven, the priest like Melchizedek we've been seeing the last few weeks. And so he's going to continue that theme in this end of chapter 7. Last week, if you were with us, we ended at verse 22, where he said that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. I wish I could just preach a whole sermon on that. Maybe I will someday. But he's going to continue that theme here in verse 23 until the end of the chapter. So follow along with me in your copy of the scripture if you have one. The author of Hebrews, which we don't know who he was, continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, and that's Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect." forever. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to walk through this text today under three headings, and you can follow along as we go. But I want to share from this text about the kind of priest that we need, the kind of priest you need and that I need. The kind of priest that we have, we're going to see that is Jesus. And then I want you, in light of that, knowing that we have a priest like Jesus, I want you to see his ability to save to the uttermost. Uh, and so those will be the headings that we, we uh, follow this text and see see it. But I want to start by talking from this text about the kind of priest that we need, the kind of priest that you need, that I need. We all know in our life, and we learn it more clearly as we get older, that particular jobs demand particular types of people right? Not everybody can do every type of job, right? Uh, There's some of us who would have no business trying to do the job of the person right next to us right now, right? We wouldn't be qualified to do it. We wouldn't have the skills to do it. And that's a a beautiful thing. But whether you're a doctor, a professor, civil servant, or whoever, like whatever you do, there are certain things that need to be true about you to fill that role, right? It it may have to do with things with age or experience or education or skills that you have, but we are not just interchangeable people, right? Like, I love the Indianapolis Colts. I could not go suit up if they were in the playoffs and play quarterback for them, right? But Peyton Manning, Colts legend, I don't know him, but I doubt he could get up here and preach a sermon on Sunday, right? Like, we don't do each other's jobs. There's certain things that need to be true of us. There's credentials, qualities, prerequisites, if jobs are going to be performed rightly, if they're actually going to be done. And so the question becomes, if we need A high priest. We need someone to mediate between us and God. We need someone to bring us to God as our priest. It it begs the question of what must that priest be like? What needs to be true of him? If he's going to actually do that. If he's going to be capable of doing it and then actually willing to do it. uh, We need a particular kind of priest. And this text tells us what kind of priest that we need. And it's been seen in other parts of Hebrews, but it's clearly seen here as well. If you look at verse 26, if you have the ESV, it uses a particular word I want to draw attention to, the word fitting. Do you see that? It says that it was indeed fitting fitting that we should have such a high priest. The author knew there was a kind of priest we need. Uh, There there were things that needed to be true, needed to be fitting of him to mediate between us and God. And I I mentioned how he's been contrasting the priests of the tribe of Levi that they were familiar with, with this priest Jesus. And he's been showing the differences between them. And in this text, he's showing us how Jesus actually is fitted to serve that role. The Levitical priests were not. Jesus is. He actually can serve in this role. Not just any priest will do, right? We need a particular kind of priest, a fitting priest. And I want to show you a couple of things about the fittedness, what kind of priest we need under two headings, morality and mortality, Morality and mortality. I think those are two headings that we can see things that needed to be true of this priest. If he's going to actually mediate between us and God, things about morality and things about mortality. But start with morality. A few things here from this text where we can see that we need a priest who is morally pure, right? Who's not just good, who doesn't just kind of do well if we're grading on a curve, but we need a, we need a priest who is morally pure himself, right? You see that in verse 26. As he continues that verse, he says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then notice the next three words that he uses, like this cluster of kind of similar words, but he says, holy, innocent, unstained. If we had time, we could tease out what all those mean, but there's overlap to them, right? It, there's these ideas baked into those words of purity, of moral purity, that he, this priest needed to be perfectly obedient to God, that he needed to be fully obedient to the Heavenly Father. He needed to be perfectly loving toward his fellow human beings, right? He needed to have perfect relations with them and with us, where he doesn't sin against us even, and that he needed to be unstained. He needed to be able to be around us, but not corrupted by us right? That's the kind of priest that we needed. He can sinners doesn't mean separated in a physical way, but separated in what I would call like a qualitative way, that he's distinct as far as holiness and godliness from us, that yes, he's around us, he can minister to us, but he's not corrupted by us. He, He continues in his purity. He's separated from sinners, even though he lived. In light of this, we need a priest. You need a priest. I need a priest. Who needs no sacrifice for his own sins, right? That's the kind of priest we need: was a a person who did not need to offer sacrifice for himself. We needed someone who actually, on his own merits, has fellowship with God. That's unhindered, right? Who could actually sacrifice to come near to God? Because, uh, boiling it down to the simplest notes, I would say that a sinful priest can't draw near to God himself. Near to God himself let alone bring other people with him, right? Uh, that it would be impossible. He wouldn't be suited to the job if he has his own sin that is separating him from heaven. The author draws attention to this as he talks about this priest that we now do have, Jesus. He says that he has no need like those high priests talking about the Levit- First for his own sins and then for those of the people, right? That he's saying that's the kind of priest we need. That's the kind of priest we have is one who didn't need to sacrifice for his sin. And again and again and again for centuries amongst the Jewish people, right before their eyes, were supposed to be, and he's going to blow out this concept as we go deeper into Hebrew. So I'll just mention it simply. Were to remind you in part, they were to do other things, but they were to remind you in part that the guy who is interceding for you has sin himself. Right? He's not able to just go into God's presence. He has sinned himself. He's not really, truly qualified to bring you to God. If he needs to offer the blood of bulls, every Levitical priest you could ever line up needed cleansing himself. Right? They ne- he needed forgiveness himself. Yes, he was allowed entrance into the tabernacle. It was something that God granted to him, not that he deserved. Right? Uh, and so we needed a priest. We need a priest who is morally pure, It's morality. We don't need a priest who could perform his work permanently, right? Who could continue on in service. That's the kind of priest we need, right? We needed a priest, if you go back, above the heavens, right? Who's not subject to mortality, who's not going to die and be laid in a tomb. We need a priest who is above the heavens. Can't draw near to God himself. A dead priest cannot intercede for us, right? A dead priest does us no good. Right, He, he may no good, and so what we need, what you need, what I need, a priest who has no threat to ever be separate from God himself, who has no need to dread that someday my life's going to end, and then my service is over. We need a priest who can get to God and then stay with God, right? so that then he can bring us with him into the presence of God. That is the kind of priest that we need, and we know this to be true in our hearts because our longing as human beings is not just to get to God for a season. Right? Or just for a stretch of time. Um, But our desire is to, and our need is to be reconciled to God for eternity, right? Forever. And that calls for a special kind of priest who is immortal, like who has no death looming over him. Author is pointing these people who were tempted to go back to those Levitical priests. He says those former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, right? They, they would have sometimes a good run of a few decades, but then they could not continue in their office as priests because of death. Dead priests don't do good for us, right? Think about how many priests, how many high priests even, had come and gone from the time that the law was given at Sinai until the temple was destroyed in around A.D. 70. There's a historian, Josephus, from the first century who records for us, uh, this isn't inspired, but it's probably close to accurate. He records that there were 83 high priests from Aaron until the last of priests when the temple was destroyed, 83. And these weren't short runs like our presidencies. Sometimes these were long. They, they, They were long tenures at times. 83 different men had served as high priests. Uh, Aaron was the first, but you can go read about his death in Numbers 20, right? His son, Eleazar, became priest. You can go read about his death in Joshua 24. And then a whole slew of men served in that role again and again, but ultimately they served and they died. They were prevented from continuing in office because of death, right? So 83 different high priests had served. None of them were immortal, right? Every single one of them had a shelf life to their ability to serve as priests for God's people. So we need, you need, I need a priest who is morally pure, right? Morally perfect even. And we need a priest who is immortal, who cannot die. That is a high bar, right? Like someone who is morally perfect, And then as far as mortality, they're they're indestructible, right? They're they're immortal. That is a high bar. But I'm going to steal from the next text here in Hebrews. If you just bounce your eyes down to verse 1 of chapter 8, the good news is not just that we need a high priest like that, but look at what he says, and we'll get back to this actually two weeks from now. Verse 1 of chapter 8, the very next sentence after today's text. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, right? The one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That is good news for you and for me because we need that kind of priest. Whether we acknowledge it or not, you need him, I need him. But it's one thing to need something, that doesn't mean you automatically have it, right? We need that priest and we have that priest. There is one person who has lived who actually meets those qualifications, who actually can serve as the priest that we need. And no surprise, I hope to any of you, his name is Jesus. Right? The Levites, the Levitical priests, were not fitted for this office. They were not up to snuff. They were not capable of actually bringing people to God. They were immoral and they were mortal. Right? We needed a priest who is moral and immortal, and that's exactly who we have in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to show you a few things in today's text that demonstrate that under those same headings, morality and mortality. Look at verse 27 again. He says in verse 27 that Jesus had no need like those former priests to offer a sacrifice for his own sin, right? He didn't need to slay a bull. He didn't need to put on the vestments and things that that a priest would to go into the presence of God. And this was not just a free pass from God the Father. It's not that God the Father just made some special exceptions for him and he didn't need to, to offer a sacrifice, the reason he didn't need to offer a sacrifice is because he didn't sin. Right? Jesus did not sin. And I want you, if you have never before, to take a moment and try to fathom that. We, I have sinned countless times today already. Probably in ways I don't even know. We have probably sinned in countless ways during worship that we don't even know. Jesus lived three plus decades under intense scrutiny and opposition and sinned zero times. Lived a perfectly moral life. Perfectly loving life toward his heavenly father and toward his fellow human beings. What a contrast that is with the Levitical priests, right? Right? Those brothers, as well-intentioned as they may be, every year when the Day of Atonement came, you read in Leviticus 16, they had to do all of these rituals. They had to put on these things. They had to slay a bull. They had to take blood into the presence of God. They had to, to do these things just to be able for a moment to go into the presence of God. And it was because they were guilty. And we, I think I can say this on good grounding. If you imagine Jesus' capacity while he was walking this earth and the temple was still up, right? And there was the holy place and the holy of holies where God dwelled. I want to tell you, Jesus could have just walked through the courtyard of the temple. I think he could have walked into the holy place. I think he could have, with confidence and no fear, have moved that curtain aside and gone directly into the presence of God the Father and enjoy it, right, without fear, without trepidation, without nervousness that he's going to be struck dead. He didn't need to offer a sacrifice, and the reason I can suggest to you, I think he could have done that, although I don't think he did. We'd have no record of that anywhere. They probably would have forbid him, but he went to an even more holy place, right? He went, he went to heaven itself and is now at the right hand of God the Father, having never offered a sacrifice for his own sin, Right? Because he didn't need to. Jesus actually could go into the presence of God, live in the presence of God fully because he had no sin of his own. He had no need to sacrifice for his own sin. The Father was perfectly pleased. So with your pastor, not so with you. But with Jesus, he's the one person that God the Father was perfectly pleased with and who could enter into his presence with no fear. So he could go into the presence of God But his role as priest is to bring us into the presence of God, right? And if that was going to happen, a sacrifice did need to be made, right? Because we are sinful, myself included. We are sinful. And to bring us to God, sacrifice did have to be made. And here's the gloriously good news at the end of verse 27. Is that Jesus, he didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. But he did offer a sacrifice for the sins of his people, right? And it says, I'll just read verse 27 again. It says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. And he says, since he did this, what's that? What did he do? Offer a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. That is talking very clearly about the cross of Jesus Christ. That when he went to the cross, it didn't happen in the temple, but it, like the priests would offer their sacrifices. But outside of Jerusalem, at Golgotha, Jesus was offering a sacrifice for sinners like us. And what he was offering was not some animal. That cannot atone for sin. But what he was offering was his own life, his willingness to suffer and lay down his life, to take our sin upon himself and let God the Father put him to death in our place. And the reason he did that was so that we may be forgiven, so that we might have our guilt removed, that we may have it atoned for and dealt with, so that we can now join him in the presence of God, right? That we could be brought near to God, not because we're worthy, but because we've had a sacrifice that has been made for our sins. And I want you, I'll say this. One commentator said this, I really appreciate it. He said that Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself, but he did offer a sacrifice of himself, right? That's a huge difference. Not, he didn't sacrifice for himself. He offered a sacrifice of himself. And I want you to hear this. Because the world, I think, and we ourselves can be tempted to believe this, kind of soften our guilt, so like water down how desperately we need a priest, how desperately we need a savior. I want you to hear this. And I would throw myself into this category. We are not just a confused people who need guidance, right? We are not just a hurting people who need care. We are not just a weak people who need strength. We are all those things. But even more than that, deeper than that, we are a sinful people who need forgiveness, like you are a sinful person who needs forgiveness. I am a sinful person who needs forgiveness. And that is why Jesus offered up himself at the cross. Was well, so that we might be forgiven, that we might be pardoned of our sin, the guttermost sins, right? The worst of sins, the private ones that we're afraid to confess to people, all of these heinous things that we've done that we know, that we don't know, that are public, that are private. Jesus laid down his life. For his people so we might be forgiven of those things. That our guilt may be removed so that we might be brought into the presence of God. And he did it once for all. Right? That means it was effective. It's not like he got us 50% forgiven and had to do it again. He, he bought 100% of the forgiveness of his people at the cross. Once for all, a single effective sacrifice for sin. So he was morally pure. He was this high priest who was morally pure, but this mortality question. So he can go to God, but he was laid in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, right? A dead priest does us no good, right? But a living priest does. And that is why it's so vital. And the author of Hebrews mentions again and again or in different terms that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is not a dead priest. He died, but he is not a dead priest. If you look, a couple of ways you see this about the resurrection of Jesus, that he's actually become immortal. Look at verse 24 The author says that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's referencing the resurrection. Jesus is not just some disembodied spirit floating around in heaven, right? He was raised with a physical body never to die again, indestructible. And now he continues forever at the right hand of God the Father, able to intercede for us right? Verse 25 says that, that he is able then consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, which we'll return to in a moment, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You can't say that about a dead person, right? He always lives to make intercession for his people. And then if you drop down to verse 28, how he ends this chapter, he says that the oath of God that we read about a couple weeks ago in Psalm 110, Appoints a son, side note, I would expect the word priest there, but he reminds us he's the son of God. Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever, right? Earlier in the chapter, he talked about how perfection wasn't attainable through the Levitical priest. But now he says, this priest has been made perfect and made perfect forever that is never going to change he has been raised indestructible fully approved by God he has been made perfect forever and so Jesus has the credentials and the qualities that are needed to be this high priest for you and for me right he has when you think about morality and mortality he has everything that is needed to serve as this high priest but the even better news for us is that not just that he's capable of being that high priest but he is willing to be that high priest for us because we're sometimes qualified to do things we don't actually want to do, right? And that we don't actually do. But Jesus is qualified and he actually serves in this way. He actually operates as the high priest of heaven interceding between us and God. So look up with me back at verse 25. That word consequently, that's at the start of the verse. I so appreciate that. He says consequently because of these things. Of Jesus' purity and his perfection, his being raised consequently, as a result of that, he is able, here's the phrase that that, uh, Billy Sunday likes so much, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. The phrase that Billy Sunday loves so much, I love as well. He is able to save to the uttermost. If you have the ESV, uh, which is not the only good translation out there. But it probably has a footnote in your Bible, which I don't usually draw attention to those, but it probably has a footnote on the phrase to the uttermost. If you drop your eyes down or click on it however you need to, it clarifies for us, the translators did, that that phrase to the uttermost kind of covers two different ideas. That It means completely or at all times. That, that we're saved, able to be saved completely but they were also able to be saved at all times. And so, a couple of things I wanted to note on that, because this is such good news. The salvation that Jesus offers as our high priest is complete, it is to the uttermost. Complete, right? It is not partial. It is not most of the salvation that we need, not most of the forgiveness that we need. It is a full salvation that He provides to us, full atonement for our sin. Jesus is able, His cross was able to atone for any sin, no matter how dark, no matter how heinous that sin is, no matter how guttermost that sin was. Jesus died for that kind of sin. Right? It wasn't just that he died for certain categories of sin. He died for every sin of his people. Every sin was atoned for for the people of God at the cross. And I, I want you to remember this for those who are saved in the room, those who are forgiven of your sin. I want you to remember this as you go out into the community, as you share the good news with people Please never ever write people off as if they're so far gone. Their sin is so bad that God could not atone. He offers salvation to the uttermost. He can atone, he can forgive any sin of this person if they will draw near to him through Christ, right? And that is true for any of you who are sitting in this room. I've prayed for you. If you have come into this room today, maybe feeling, I could never be forgiven by God. Like, I have done too much. I have strayed too far from God. The atonement that Christ offered at the cross uh, can cover all of your sin, can, can deal with any sin that you have committed. God is willing to offer full pardon to you for your sin, past, present, and future. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save completely. And if you have entered this morning unsure of your standing with God or having never placed your faith in Christ, I want you to find good news. Please put your eyes on verse 25, where he says he's able to save to the uttermost. And then who does he say he can save? Those who draw near to God through him. He does not say he is able to save people who only sinned this much, but not this much. he, He says he is able to save anyone, everyone who draws near to him through Christ. This morning, that can be you. Like, that can be you. If you will turn from your sin, no matter how dark and heinous it has been, no matter how pervasive it has been in your life, if you will draw near to God through Christ and what he has done for you at the cross, you will be forgiven. And that is gloriously good news. He can save you to the uttermost. He can offer complete and provide complete forgiveness to you this moment and for eternity of all of your sin. And he is able to say to the uttermost completely, but also at all times, right? He, that's part of what to the uttermost means. We sang at the very beginning of the service that I love the line, and before the throne of God above, where it says, talking about Christ says, whoever lives and pleads for me, like who always lives and pleads for me, we have Jesus with God the Father always. And forever, right? Constantly. We have him at the right hand of God the Father. And with Jesus, we don't just get a good run with God, right? It's not that we will ever look back and think, that was great while well it lasted, that, that reconciliation that I had with God. That will never be. Our, our reconciliation with God, our, our enjoyment of him is always going to be present. And it will dwell into all eternity. It will last into all eternity. We have no fear that our salvation will somehow run out. Or that God will pull the rug out from under us. He ever lives and pleads for us. And the good news for us in verse 25 is on top of him providing forgiveness for us, whether it's glorious enough, Verse 25 ends by saying he always lives to make intercession for us. That I don't think that means what sometimes we think it means where we picture like an angry God the Father and Jesus like kind of sticking up for us. Like, like God, please like let him, forgive him again. Like please forgive him again. Like remember the cross. Like I, I suffered for them. Like you need to cool off. Like that is not what Jesus is doing by interceding for us, right? He offered the sacrifice once for all. Right? And it was accepted by God the Father. When he intercedes for us, it's, do, it's doing at the right hand of God the Father like what I think he did the night before he was betrayed. When he told the apostle Peter, who also had the name Simon, he said in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But hear this, Jesus, the heart of Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In that moment, Jesus had been and was interceding for his brother, asking not just for forgiveness, but asking for strength to resist temptation and asking for a a feeling, so to speak, to minister to his brothers after he returned and repented. And so that is the type of intercession Jesus, even now, today, offers for us and always will till the day that we die and go be with him. He intercedes. Before the Father on our behalf saying, help them, Father. Like, please, like, provide them the grace that they need. Give them the encouragement that they need. Give them the hope that they need. Give them the power that they need. This is good, good news for us. In our world, I'll close with this. In our world, we make a big deal about succession plans. And it happens in different industries. It happens in churches. Uh, we think about succession plans. And in our world, those are important. That as we see out on the horizon, then we, though we don't know when it will be, that someone who's serving in a role or people who are serving in a certain role are either going to retire or they're going to pass away. We anticipate that and we try to plan ahead. We try to develop people to come behind them and to serve in those capacities there's always risk in succession plans, isn't there? You you don't know that there's going to be a person or people to fill that role. You don't know that they're going to be up to snuff to actually fill those shoes, to do the things that the person or the people before them did. And in the, the succession plan of the Levitical priesthood, it just would be passed from father to son to son to son to son. And it was a mixed bag of how these men would serve. But when it comes to the high priesthood of heaven, right? There is only one priest who has ever been capable of serving in that role, Jesus Christ, right? And there is no need for a succession plan. (laughs) There is no turning back from him. Now that he has come, he has been crucified, he has been raised, he is the one man who can fill that role and the one man who does fill that role as our great high priest. I want to end by saying, he alone can save you. Right? He alone can save you, and he can save you to the uttermost. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. First.